So then, we're starting, as Lou said, this uh, series on the cross, the cross of Jesus. Because it's not just a cross, it's that Jesus died on the cross. And what we're thinking about is uh, what he did there, what happened there, and how that affects our lives. Now, I guess most people... Yeah, I suppose most people in our country and in other places uh, would realize that the cross and Christianity go together, don't they? I mean, you, you pretty much, if you, you ask anyone in the street, what's the symbol of Christianity? I guess most people would say the cross. And I know, actually, I've, I've heard people, marketeers would say, that's just such a great brand. You know, everyone knows what, what it means. Well, they don't know what it means, actually. Everybody recognizes this, this shape and associates it with, with Christianity and Jesus. And when you become a Christian, uh, you, I suppose, realize that as you become a Christian, the reason you become a Christian, in the process of becoming a Christian, you realize that, that what Jesus did on the cross is special. It's how we can come to know God. It's the way to life. And maybe you, you became a Christian because someone shared an outline with you and, and the cross was like a bridge that bridged the gap between us and God. But you know, there's a lot more to what happened on the cross than just kind of the, the simple thing that we embrace when we first become Christians. It's like, a, the subject, it's like a swimming pool, you know. Children can paddle in it at one end, but at, you, there's a lot more. It gets deeper. And uh, there's a, a deep end to it. It's like a diamond, someone has said. Actually, Peter Lambros has often used this expression. And it's helped that, that, that when you look at the cross and what Jesus has done on the cross, it's like looking at a diamond. You know, imagine a huge diamond. That would be valuable, wouldn't it, if you had one that big? Um, and if, you turn, if there's a light shining on it, as you turn it, you'd see the light kind of reflect, refracting off in different ways because of the different kind of faces of the diamond and in many ways uh, when we talk about what Jesus did on the cross we're looking at something rather like that it's got lots of bits to it the Bible gives us different pictures to help us to see how just how amazing God's love is how great his power is how actually shocking and incredible is his grace to us and I think all of these different elements about what Jesus has done on the cross are becoming important to us as we grow in our understanding, as we go through the different ages and stages of our life. So I think we keep learning how it works in different ways. And if being a Christian is to have God's Holy Spirit in us, if being a Christian is to have the Father making his home in us, as Jesus says, God the Father at home in you, If being a Christian is like having Jesus so close to us that we're like branches to his vine, as it were, as he says in in the Bible, then it's going to touch us deeply, isn't it? If the whole Holy Trinity is involved in our lives, then that's kind of deep, isn't it? It's big. It's worth getting out of our depth, I think. Otherwise... God's going to be a pretty small God, isn't he? And he isn't. He isn't. So we want to dig into what the Bible says about all of this. So that we're not just, when we think about the cross, thinking about that that one illustration we had when we became a Christian. 
Or that one thing we read about where somebody was kind of saying, oh, the Bible says this and I don't like this very much. Or some other thing we think, oh, if we go down that road, oh, that's a bit kind of, I don't get that. I want us to go into the Bible and to see what the Bible says through this series and, and learn from there. So today, we're thinking about how Jesus dying on the cross deals with sin and brings forgiveness. You know, the earliest record of the Christian message that we have in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. Let me read it to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. There it is. I passed on to you of first importance. Now, the Apostle Paul who wrote that, he wrote it in about AD 55. And he's talking about the time when he was with these Christians before they became Christians in a place called Corinth. And we know for absolute certain, there's archaeological evidence to, to, to tell us that he was there preaching that in about AD 51 or 52. I won't tell you why it is, but take it, it is true. So from that very point... And this, this, this was written, uh, Paul writes his letter before the Gospels were written. Well, the Gospels were written in about the 50s and 60s, later 50s, into the 60s, 70s AD. But this, he's saying, this I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, Paul says, I passed that on to you because Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Paul met Jesus in, a, in, in another way after the resurrection. But Paul is saying, I was there from the beginning. I knew the first disciples. I knew what Jesus taught. It was passed on to me. And I've passed it on to you. And the first and the most important thing is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And obviously Peter and the others were on the streets of Jerusalem preaching that straight after the resurrection. But Luke didn't write it up until later than this. So this is the very first time where it's written down. And what's written down is what was shared. And what was shared was most important, Christ died for our sins. According, It goes on to say that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And what that means, um, it doesn't mean according, as, as when you say, well, according to so-and-so. <laughs> it's, no, it's saying according, in accordance, as spoken about, as unpacked, as expected by the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, Paul is saying, I told you this, Gentiles they were mainly, they didn't even have the Jewish scriptures, but he said, I pass this on to you as of the first important thing. So right away, right away, we know from AD from 55, this message that Christ died for us. There's a purpose. Other places say Christ died for us. He died for our sakes. And what does for mean? When we say Christ died for us, what does it mean? Well, for these people, Paul's writing to, it means that Jesus' death, Jesus dying on a cross, connects with them. 17 years later, in Corinth, when they first heard about it. How's that? How can the death of one man on a cross, 17 years earlier, affect these people that Paul's writing to? And how does it affect us? Now, we think about Remembrance Day, don't we? We have Remembrance Day, and people understand that soldiers who give their lives, some people would say, when we remember the sacrifice soldiers and other service people make, they died for us, some would say, because 
they gave freedom. They preserved our Western way of life from fascism and so on in the Second World War and other things at other times. So we kind of see, yeah, well, so is it talking about something like that? Well, that doesn't work with Jesus, does it? Jesus dying on a cross didn't do anything really for anyone just at that level. It can't just be talking about the way we talk about soldiers and other servicemen on, uh, and women on Remembrance Day. It's not just an inspiring way for the story of Jesus to end because it's not that inspiring. Somebody executed, accused of blasphemy, rejected by the whole world, scorned, mocked, abused, thrown on the kind of rubbish tip, or he would have been if someone hadn't given him a decent uh, uh, tomb to be put into. That's not very inspiring. No other religious team. We don't hear of any other religious leader dying for anyone. I don't think we do anyway. This is unique. When the Christians went out saying Christ died for us, they were saying something very unusual. What did it mean? Where did they get it from? Paul says that the most important thing was first, and it was this. So where does it come from? Well, I'd like to suggest that actually it comes from Jesus himself. You know, Jesus in the Gospels starts to talk, tell his disciples about how he was going to be crucified and rejected. The disciples don't grasp it. Sometimes they plain argue with him. Well, on one occasion, Peter says, no, you're not going to do that, Jesus. That's not going to happen to you. Don't be ridiculous. You won't know the story. Jesus rebukes Peter. And on one of those occasions, when Jesus was kind of pointing to, to something about how he was going to uh, die, he said this. It's in Mark 10:45. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many to give his life for on another occasion jesus said i'm the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that's what jesus said his words remembered now the word the word ransom is an interesting one the New Testament uses this word several times to explain what it means when it says Jesus died for us. The ransom was the price that was paid to buy someone out of slavery. If someone was to be released from slavery in the Roman world, you could buy them out of their slavery by paying for it, and they could be released. Was sometimes used in, in war times when prisoners of war were captured, and then the other government said, let's have, the, let's have them back. And they said, if you pay the ransom, you can have them back. It's a picture word. It's Jesus' word. It's how Jesus explains what he's going to do. A life is given so that others can benefit. People are in a position where they can't get out of it, and so a price is paid so that they can be freed. That's what it says. And as Jesus was in the last week of his life, he goes for Passover in Jerusalem. 
And the disciples and Jesus have a meal together. They have the Passover meal together. And Jesus focuses it towards the end, and we're going to be doing something like it later on this morning. He focuses it on himself and his coming death. If you have a look at Matthew's Gospel, this is on page 996 of your Bibles. should be in arm's reach, hopefully. It's important to see that this isn't what, you know, Christians have made up. It's right from the Bible, and it's right from Jesus. It's not something necessarily Paul cooked up later on. These are the words of Jesus. Again, these words that we're about to read were the most memorized, perhaps, words that Jesus ever spoke. Because by the time the early church was meeting, they were repeating these very words to one another. And we know that because in the same letter written in AD, about AD 55, Paul quotes it. And we'll probably read those words later on. Maybe we won't. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. So Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. This is my body, he says. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They'd just eaten a meal, probably included roast lamb, to remember how God had rescued them from Egypt. To remember, we had the story uh, in our last series in Exodus, how God had made a way for the Israelite households to be preserved from the judgment that was coming onto the whole nation of Egypt. And the reason they could be preserved, the reason they could uh, avoid the judgment was because uh, the lamb was killed and then the the blood was put on the doorpost. Remember the story? And then they ate the lamb together to identify, to realize what God has done. And every year the uh, Israelites, I I think Jewish people still do, eat this Passover meal to remember that. God's great deliverance. Jesus gives them bread and says to them, look, take this, eat this. This is my body given for you. It's a picture. They'd eaten the lamb. They'd been remembering how they uh, were identifying with God's provision. They'd eaten that to remember that because of how God rescued them. But Jesus, now, now eat this. This, is, this, is, this bread, eat this. It's a symbol. It's a sign of something. It's for you. Actually, Luke says, this is my body given for you. It's for you, he says. I'm giving it. And then Jesus takes a cup and he explains. He says there, it's the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood for the forgiveness of sins. Right there, he said it. And bells would have been ringing in these Jewish guys, and if there were some women there, possibly women too, of their upbringing of synagogue school and how when they uh, had, to, had to learn huge chunks of the Old Testament, uh, uh, certainly Jewish boys had to do that. 
Um, there's a, by the way, there's a great book just come out published by Chris Halls, who used to be at Highfield Church, about the first few thousand days. It's about, all about how Jewish boys were brought up, and it's just fascinating insight. Sorry, that's a sideline. Shouldn't, shouldn't I'm off my notes, but get it. That's one, one of the things Chris talks about there is, is, is it tells you all about how, uh, the, what the background was. So these Jewish boys would have known huge, huge, probably all of the Old Testament, off by heart. So when they heard Jesus say this, bells were ringing, ringing about stories of how sin could be dealt with as animals were sacrificed, stories of how to come before God. But when they heard the phrase poured out for many, then they may have heard another bell ringing, poured out for many. Hold on to that thought. Because as Jesus went to the cross, a particular scripture from the Old Testament, remember it says Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. A particular Scripture was in his mind, was on his heart. He was kind of living with it as he went to the cross. How do I know that? Because he told the disciples so. Here it is. In Luke's account, just before Jesus goes out to Gethsemane, to the garden... Jesus says to them this, and they are remarkable words. He says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That is a quotation from the Old Testament. And I tell you, says Jesus, that this must be fulfilled. Must, by the way, must fulfilled is one of Luke's buzz phrases. But anyway, I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Poured out for you is a quotation as well from Isaiah 53. So what I want us to do for a few minutes is to look at that scripture that Jesus has on his mind, on his heart, as he goes to Gethsemane and onto the cross. And it's on page 741 and it's Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 because not only does Jesus explain his death but scripture signposts his death this is what Jesus says is reaching its fulfillment in me says Jesus so Jesus idea is that this scripture is pointing to him that's what Jesus said. Okay. What's it saying? Well, before we get into it, I want us just to, point to, to, to get hold of this truth. This quotation, this part of the Bible, comes from a particular time in Israel's history. It's way after the story of the Exodus when they came out of Egypt. It's way after the time they went into the promised land and conquered the, uh, and got the promised land. It's way after King David and King Solomon and the kingdoms were set. It's way, way after all of that. It's actually at a point that's not good for them because as Isaiah writes this, they are in exile in Babylon. They've been judged by God. Their, their precious land is in ruins. Their temple has gone because of what they had done. And we'll come on to that. They had basically failed big time. 
when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of the other prophets, they're writing into this time when they'd really blown it. The Israelites, I mean. They weren't in a good place at all. Despite everything, despite God rescuing them from Egypt, despite all the ways he'd shown them what he's like, all the ways he'd shown them how he loved them, all the ways he'd shown them how they could live with him in the land he gave them, in spite of all the ways he'd explained and, and shown how they could come back to him when they'd done wrong. He'd even told them how to deal with their sins in sacrifice and as an offering so they could remain in relationship with him. They even had, there was even a way that the whole nation's sin could be taken into the desert and kind of dumped there in a ceremony on the Day of Atonement, as it was called. Uh, And you read about it in Leviticus. To save you uh, turning up, I thought, because it is an astonishing piece. It says, when Aaron had finished making atonement, this was something that happened once a year. uh, Jewish people call it Yom Kippur today. They still celebrate. I don't think they do stuff with goats and things, but it's this particular day. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. So there's a live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. That was one of the things God gave them to do. I've read that for a reason. Uh, Remember that. So despite all the ways he'd given them to enjoy his presence with them, the tabernacle and the temple, all this great stuff, this amazing prospect of being his people for the world, they didn't live up to it. They couldn't live up to it. Just like Adam and Eve couldn't do what God... You, Adam and Eve were, were told, I want, God says, I want you to rule the earth. I want you to be in relationship with me. I want you to be my, my kind of uh, vice regents. I want all of this for you. And they, they blew it. There's only one thing you can't do, says God, and they went and did it. And it was a bit like that for the Israelites, a bit like that for us. There's this problem, isn't there, that we have when we're honest. And despite all of that, they chose other gods, and so do we, the Israelites. And the evil and the darkness and the oppression that goes with worshipping other things came in. And they ended up away from God. In fact, thousands of miles away from God in exile when Isaiah wrote his prophecy. Let's dip into it. No, no, let's not do that. Sorry. (laughs) But God doesn't give up. He speaks through prophets like Isaiah, promising that they will return and that God would do something much more, actually, something new for the whole world. Isaiah starts to sing, not about something, but actually a someone, someone special, someone who is kind of presented and called the servant, God's servant, who would bring this new thing into being, And Isaiah 53 is one of those songs about this servant. Let's dip into it. Look at verse 52. uh, Sorry, chapter 50, verse 13. That tells us kind of where it's all going. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
verse 13. Verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. That's about the impact he's going to make. At the end of Isaiah 53, there's the same idea. He will make impact. He will put everything right. He will be exalted. This servant, it's going to end well, says Isaiah, because of this servant. But before that, there's going to be appalling suffering. Look at verses 4 to 7. Surely, in 53, surely he, the servant, took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Here's phrases that tell us that the servant is going to take sin. He's bearing our suffering. It says we're the ones who are astray. We're like sheep astray. We're the ones with the iniquities. We're the ones with the transgressions. We're the ones with the sins. But it says the Lord lays them on him. Look at verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see the offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, and so on. Verse uh, 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. Again, this is the after the, the kind of victory afterwards. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Remember Jesus said, This is my blood that was poured out for you. He poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, which is what Jesus quoted. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And that's the very phrase used like that goat. Took the sin of many away on him. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about. All this comes in one person, the servant. It's what he will do as he suffers and dies. And Isaiah, you know Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And Isaiah 53 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament. All the apostles that write quotes this. Even Philip in the book of Acts on the road to Emmaus. Remember he reads that African guy in a chariot? Know that story? He's reading, the, and, and, and he, he's reading something. He's reading the Old Testament, this African uh, official. He's been up to Jerusalem. What's he reading about? He's reading Isaiah 53. And he says to Philip, who's this, who's this person talking about? What's this about, he says. And Philip, it says in Acts, told him the good news about Jesus. It's what Jesus has done. And that's, this has been cooked up by theologians. This is right here in the Bible. This is where we start. And I don't think we should go that far from here either, by the way. 
Let's not try and kind of match all these pictures together and go outside of the framework and say, oh, that means this and that means that. Let's just stay with the picture and enjoy what, what it means. It's saying Jesus has borne it. He's taken sin. He's taken it away. When he died on the cross. That's what Jesus says is being fulfilled on the Thursday of Easter week. As he goes out into the night, that's what's in his heart. Maybe that's what he prayed about in Gethsemane. We don't know. Maybe he prayed through it. Maybe that's why great drops of blood appeared on his brow as he prayed it through and realized what he was in for. That's speculation. But it was definitely on his mind. You know John the Baptist, back in the very beginning of John's Gospel? Now John the Baptist came up with an amazing statement. And lots of the, um, uh, well not lots, I read one or two commentators. I think, what did John the Baptist mean? He said something. He said, look, here's, he saw Jesus coming down the road. And he said, look everyone, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And lots of uh, commentators think, well what did John mean by that, for goodness sake? What was on his mind? Because if he meant the young pig there, David Toman, that was a goat. And he didn't say, behold, the goat of God, you know, all that kind of stuff. But actually, Jesus, I think, told us uh, some of the answer. Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He was the greatest prophet. Jesus is prophes- uh, John rather, is prophesying. The Holy Spirit is speaking through John. John sees Jesus. I don't know whether John understood what he was saying. But he, God kind of spoke through him and he said, this is the Lamb of God. He's the one. The Lamb of God. Now that, we haven't got time because I'm going I'm to be out of time very quickly. But if you look in the book of Revelation, you'll see there in chapter 5. Don't look now, but read it when you get home. It's all about the Lamb. Because when we sing about the Lamb, we sing songs about the Lamb. I think we'll sing one later, won't we? being worthy it's from the book of revelation where there's a vision of jesus who in in heaven on the throne of heaven there is a a lamb it's a picture a lamb that has been recently killed it's a picture it's saying kind of where the center of everything is now so let's move on then to think finally about Sin and forgiveness. Is sin a problem for us in our world, in our day? Do we still believe in sin? Well, I think probably as modern people we try and suppress it. But I think maybe if we're honest, we do know what it is to feel guilty, to have a conscience. We know we fail. We often carry the consequences of our sin in our lives. Sometimes, sadly, the consequences of other people's sin against us. And we see it. It's in our art. You know, if you look at culture, it's in the stories we share. It's in our entertainment. There's currently, I'm not going to recommend it because I honestly don't think I can for other reasons. But there is currently uh, a very popular award-winning uh, comedy drama on. Which actually, in incredible ways... Um, uncovers or talks about all the guilt, all the mess, all the failure, all the emptiness that this, the protagonist, the woman, the lead character experiences. 
And it's kind of, it's gripping stuff. It's award-winning drama. Why? Because it speaks into the way people feel, doesn't it? Why do these things work so well? Because they kind of push buttons. And if you look at the things we, we, we watch, the stories we tell, the things we kind of share deeply, it goes right, you go back to Shakespeare, go back to uh, um, you know, the, the ancient writers, human failure, guilt, broken down relationships, a guilty conscience. How can I put this right? It's, it's kind of rooted in all of our culture. So when we're honest, I think we realize actually it is our problem. And if our sins have been carried away by Jesus, then that's going to make a difference. I want us to look into, again, I'm going to put this on the screen, so don't worry about turning it up. This is 1 John 1 in the New Testament. This is what it says. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Let's just read it first. We If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now just really briefly, what does this say? It says that we can be purified from sin. We can be cleansed from sin. It's that word when lepers came to Jesus and they said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will be clean. The the reference was to their leprosy, their skin uh, condition. Verse 9 says what? It says we can be forgiven. More than that, it goes on to say that we can be purified. We can be cleaned up from all unrighteousness. That's about going forward. So the shame of the past, the feeling dirty, can be cleaned. The guilt can be forgiven. And the fear of going back to the same old stuff can be a hope to be pure because he can help us. He can purify us from all unrighteousness. And all of that comes where from? From the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. And he's with us. Now this isn't automatic We need to admit what we need, don't we? There it is in green. We need to confess our sins. We mustn't pretend that there's nothing wrong when we know there is something wrong. And we can go to him. And more than that, we can move forward. Because that passage goes on to say that although John is saying, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does, and let's face it, most of us, in fact all of us, will probably not live sinless lives. But when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. Jesus is on our side. He's our advocate. He's righteous. He's dealt with sins. And what he's done is enough for everyone. It says it's enough for the sins of the whole world. But... We need to admit it. We need to repent. We need to ask him. Remember that story Jesus told about two men going to the temple to pray. One of them prays like this. God, I thank you that I'm really pretty good. 
I thank you that I do this, I do that, I do that, and I really thank you for all the good things I do. And most of all, I thank you that I'm not like that man there. <laughs> and that man there is kind of down in the dust and he's saying, God, just be merciful to me, the sinner. He calls himself the sinner. You see, Jesus says, which one of those two men went home justified? That's an interesting word. More of that next week. It was the one who just asked God for his forgiveness. Sometime. Now, I really must stop. Finally, then, all of this tells us something important about us. What does it tell us? We've got a big problem. It must be big if God would do all of that to rescue us from it. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see what a big problem it is as we look around our world as it is. Secondly, it reveals God's amazing love. And as we shall see as we go on, you really have to get hold of something really, really important. You see, Jesus and God are not separate. God the Father and the Son are not like separate actors in this drama. This is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the community of the Trinity, finding the way. God giving his Son. Jesus the Son freely offering up his life. All of God is involved in this. Hebrews says it was by the eternal spirit that Jesus sacrificed himself to God. So don't, when you get into people saying, well, you know, I don't like this idea because it looks like God's punishing Jesus and why should the Father do this? It's not that. God together. It's God is punishing himself, as we shall see. God is absorbing it into his own huge character of love. His great holiness is, is kind of... Satisfied was the word that people use, but you know that all that God is is, is kind of vindicated because, because what God has done. This is God's rescue plan. Sin is taken away by God. The Lamb is the Lamb of God. Forgiveness is offered by God. All we have to do is like the, the bloke, you know, who is down on his knee saying, God be merciful to me the sinner we just have to take the uh, situation we're in seriously turn to Jesus and receive what he gives and live the life he offers to live with us there's a great verse in the Bible that says this God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners Christ died us it's amazing we can be forgiven we can be cleaned we can start on a path that is righteous because of what god has done through jesus on the cross let's respond as we worship